Why are there so many Protestant churches? To begin with, they have different answers to the question, what is the church? Is it everyone in a particular country? Those who've been baptized as infants? Those who are chosen by God? Or those who believe? Over the past two weeks, I've linked these answers to the four Protestant denominational families that began during the Reformation. But since that time, various movements have come along that made things much more messy. Many of them present different answers to my fifth question, where is assurance found? They lean in four possible directions. Some movements have focused on liturgy and church authority, basing assurance of salvation on consistent participation in the right form of worship. Last time I highlighted the confessional movement that emphasized knowledge and right belief. Now we turn to those who focus on right behavior as I share excerpts from my interview with a Methodist pastor. I'm Brian Craddock, and this is Finding Your Way in the Religious Maze. It was the summer of 1990 in Southern California. A 16-year-old, who shall remain nameless, had just received his driver's license. He was celebrating by taking his father's sporty little metallic blue Mazda RX-7 out for a spin late one afternoon, but he came to a tricky intersection where four different streets converged. He was heading southeast on the busy main road, but he wanted to make a tight left turn onto a street that runs north-northwest. When he spotted a break in the traffic, he punched it, and the tires squealed. The back end began to fishtail. What should he do? He remembered that his driver training instructor talked about turning into a skid. So he jerked hard right on the wheel, but he never let off the gas. He overcorrected and slammed into the back of a small pickup parked on the side of the road. He hit so hard that his hood slid halfway under the truck's bumper, pushing the truck a few feet forward into another car. He was shaken, but not injured. In case you're wondering, I was not the driver. I was 16 that summer, however, and I was working at a swim school across the street. I heard the crash a few minutes before I finished up for the day. But accidents happened at that intersection all the time. It wasn't until I walked out that I realized that it was my truck that was totaled. Overcorrecting is not just a problem in driving. It also happens with theology. When the maze is tilting one direction, some people will jerk hard the opposite way. Now, correction may be necessary, but they tend to overstate their points. Of course, people on the other side double down in response to such extreme views, and the argument escalates. Ultimately, someone might go over the edge. They push so hard in one direction that they lose touch with the gospel. We find an example of this sort of disagreement in church history at the beginning of the 5th century. Augustine emphasized the grace of God. Though he lived a thousand years before the Reformation, he articulated many of the ideas later taught by John Calvin. He said that people are dead in sin and can only be saved by God's gracious choice. But he also taught that grace was conferred through baptism. So he found assurance of salvation in right belief and right worship. But those were the days when Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire. Many people were Christian in name only. Their morals were lax. A British monk named Pelagius thought that Augustine's teaching on grace was to blame. So he emphasized right behavior. He rightly said that obedience was required of every Christian, not just priests. But he tilted farther than that. 
He taught that Adam's sin was just a bad example, that people have the capacity to do good. So he ended up viewing God's grace as nothing more than an external encouragement in our pursuit of perfect obedience to earn our own salvation. His teaching continued to spread after his death, but the Council of Ephesus in 431 condemned his teaching as heretical. He tilted so far toward right behavior that he abandoned any need for the gospel. So what part does right behavior play in finding assurance of salvation? Can you emphasize obedience without following the path of Pelagius? How should we think about holiness? Should we strive to live a sinless life? Is it possible to do so? These are some of the issues that I discussed with Craig Watson, the lead pastor at Kalamazoo Free Methodist Church. I asked him how he got to where he stands in the religious maze, and here's how his journey started. When I was uh, uh, 13, uh, friends of mine uh, from uh, school had invited mm-hmm. me to come to uh, to join them at church, and uh, it was the first time I'd ever been in a, a uh, church other than the Catholic Church. And about the same time, this would have been in the uh, uh, early 70s. Um, my brother uh, was uh, had uh, received the Lord and was part of the Jesus movement in the early 70s. And uh, he uh, hosted a, a Bible study one, one time at our, our house. And I uh, was invited to sit in, even though he was six years older and I was just his punk little brother. And in that Bible study, um, they were studying uh, the book of Revelation. And there was a verse, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And it just spoke to me. And I didn't know why. And so I asked my brother afterwards to uh, explain, you know, what, what's this talking about? And as he did, um, it just, I couldn't let go of that verse. So soon after that, um, the, my friend's church were hosting a, uh, a concert. And I went to the concert, and um, that verse was brought up again. Uh, and uh, it was uh, at the end of the concert, they gave an invitation. And uh, I, quite honestly, I didn't fully understand because uh, it wasn't part of my tradition. But I responded to the invitation and uh, went forward and prayed to uh, accept Christ as my, my Lord. And that was a that was changing turning point in my life. I, it was sincere. Uh, as much as a 13-year-old could understand, I, under, I, I meant what I, I prayed. And uh, so for about uh, the next two to three years, I would uh, go to 8 o'clock Mass and read, and then go as quickly as I could across town to uh, my friend's church so I could be there in time for Sunday school and church. We'll hear what led Pastor Watson to the Free Methodist Church in a moment. First, we need to learn more about Methodism, and we begin with the story of John Wesley. He was born in Northern England in 1703, the son of an Anglican minister. The church in England had been through tumultuous times in the 17th century. The Puritan movement that initially focused on the heart became wrapped up in political struggles with the monarchy that led to civil war. So by the time Wesley went to Oxford University at the age of 17, the spirit of the age was generally skeptical, secular, and rationalistic. 
Nevertheless, he pursued ministerial training and ordination in the Anglican Church. After serving as his father's assistant for a brief time, he returned to Oxford in 1729 and found that his younger brother Charles was part of a small group of students who wanted to take religion seriously. Under John's leadership, they committed themselves to a plan of Bible study, prayer, and frequent attendance at communion. They gave to the poor and visited those in prison. Fellow students mockingly called them the Holy Club or the Methodists. Yet John was still searching. In 1735, he sailed across the Atlantic to serve as a chaplain in the colony of Georgia. He encountered a terrible storm on the way, and that really set the tone for the rough few years he spent in America. But he was impressed during that trip by the sincere faith of some Moravian missionaries who were on board with him. Their movement began in what we now call the Czech Republic and was a precursor to the Reformation that emphasized simple faith and obedience. After Wesley returned to England in 1738, he sought out other Moravians in an effort to understand what it means to experience genuine faith. In his journal, he writes, In the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley continued to preach in Anglican churches, but the people were generally not receptive. However, one of his friends from the Holy Club, George Whitfield, was seeing a significant response as he preached in the open air in Bristol to coal miners who rarely set foot in a church. He urged Wesley to join him. As they preached, people responded in repentance. This Methodist revival spread as Wesley continued preaching to common people out in the open. He claims that he would travel no less than 4,500 miles per year on horseback. He continued preaching up to his death in 1791. It's estimated that he had 79,000 followers in England and 40,000 in America. Even though he faced opposition from church leaders, he never broke from Anglicanism. A separate Methodist church was not formed in England until after his death. The Methodist church in America, however, was formed in 1784. Since then, they've divided into several different denominations. Some retain the name Methodist, but others chose different names. One group calls themselves the Wesleyan Church. The Nazarene Church and the Salvation Army also have Methodist roots. So according to the Pew Research Center, these Methodist and Holiness denominations account for 5.4% of the population in the United States. So what do Methodists believe? Of course, we'll see in coming weeks that other movements influence some of these denominations, but the Free Methodists seem to stay fairly close to Wesley's teaching. When they began in 1860, they included the word free in their name for at least three reasons. First, because they opposed slavery. Then, they opposed the practice of renting out pews, which was common in other Methodist churches. And then, they opposed a strict liturgical approach to worship. But in a more general sense, I want to highlight three components of Methodism that relate to right behavior. The first two come out of my conversation with Pastor Watson. 
The third is an observation that others have made. The first component is entire sanctification. Is it possible to leave behind the darkness of sin in this life? Can you ascend to a different spiritual level where you're consistently obedient? Wesley thought so. Now, to be sanctified is to become holy and obedient, and one of the main components of Methodism, then, is the possibility of entire sanctification or perfection. Pastor Watson made this point when I asked him for a basic introduction to Methodism. If you think in terms of Methodism, as, as Wesley introduced, um, it is uh, a matter of faith in Christ that is then uh, demonstrated in the way you live. Uh, John Wesley, one of the things that was so key was he, he uh, held to what uh, James said when he said, faith without works is dead. Um, you know, the faith is essential for us to be saved, but the evidence of that faith is in how we love other people and how we serve other people. And uh, then the, the essence of that is that God can perfect that love in us to where it is undefiled by selfish motives and it's, it's totally dedicated to glorifying God and for the sake of others. Pastor Watson makes an important distinction there. Pelagius claimed that you're able to earn salvation by your obedience in your own strength. So sanctification equals salvation. Catholicism, on the other hand, says that God's grace enables you to do good deeds that merit salvation. So grace plus sanctification equals salvation. But according to Pastor Watson, Methodism holds to the Protestant idea that we're saved through faith alone. So grace plus faith equals salvation plus sanctification. In other words, obedient behavior is the evidence or proof of faith. It flows out of salvation. But the idea of reaching a level of perfection is what sets Methodism apart from other Protestant denominations that we've considered. Pastor Watson told me that it was this concept that led him to Methodism. I always sense that, yes, God wanted us to receive uh, Christ into our lives and follow him. But I also had this sense that he wanted to do uh, a work in us that was more than just going day by day and more than just uh, a being uh, saying, yeah, my faith is in Christ, um, that he wanted to keep doing a, a work in us. Um, I hate to use the word perfecting, but um, because it's so misunderstood, but basically to, to keep working in the Christ-likeness in us. And um, a lot of the Protestant churches I had attended, they focused on the essence of uh, salvation, you know, of putting your faith in Christ, receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior. Um, and then, uh, more or less, it's like, um, then I, I, I would always hear, of course, everybody's a, a sinner and everybody, you know, it's a struggle day to day to, to live the life. Uh, God is there to support you. But um, I didn't hear anybody say to the extent of he's there and through the Holy Spirit to get us to that point of loving him so totally 
that nothing else in life can compare, that there is such a total devotion that he is able then to, to fill you with uh, the love that John talks about in 1 John. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's one of the first things that struck me when I, I started to, uh, to see some of the things that, that Wesley taught. So it sounds as if the other churches he visited emphasized right belief to the neglect of right behavior. Methodism tilts strongly in the opposite direction. We spoke for quite a while about this idea of entire sanctification. You can watch the full interview on the Finding Your Way in the Religious Maze YouTube channel. He described entire sanctification as a process of growth, but also something that often happens in a moment of crisis where a person fully surrenders to God. He said it's not that a person becomes entirely sinless, but that they are quick to turn away from sinful impulses. This emphasis on right behavior leads to a second component of Methodist teaching, conditional election. Last time, I mentioned the TULIP acronym for the five points of Calvinism. T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for perseverance of the saints. Those five points from the Synod of Dort in 1619 were a response to assertions made by followers of a man named Jacobus Arminius. Arminius was part of the Dutch Reformed Church. He even went to Geneva to study under John Calvin's successor, Theodore Beza. But Arminius thought that Calvinism overstated God's sovereignty in election. His followers asserted that human beings have inherited a corrupt nature from Adam, but are not totally depraved. They said that God gives prevenient grace to everyone, so that we're able to respond to the gospel. So when Ephesians 1.4 speaks of God choosing people before the foundation of the world, they concluded that he chose by looking ahead to see who would believe. Election on the condition of faith. They then defined Christ's atoning work not as limited, but unlimited, available for everyone, yet effective only for those who believe. They also said that people have free will to resist the call of God and even after believing can turn away and end up lost. So their perseverance is not guaranteed. It's conditional. The rejection of Arminianism at the Synod of Dort initially led to the persecution of many who held these views in Europe. But other groups elsewhere adopted these beliefs. Since Baptists see the church as those who believe, some were naturally drawn to this position. They even incorporate it into their name by calling themselves General Baptists, or more recently, Free Will Baptists. The word general refers to a general or unlimited atonement, as opposed to a limited or particular atonement. In Southern Baptist churches today, you'll find both Calvinists and Arminians. When John Wesley came along a century after Arminius, he found that this understanding of Scripture supported his own focus on right behavior. I asked Pastor Watson about election, and you can hear these Arminian ideas in his response. God's given us free will to follow him or not follow him. And if a person has, by faith, accepted Christ in their life, and during their life, during that walk, for reasons I can't explain, they they say, nah, I'm done with this. I'm not going to follow Christ. I'm not going to live according to his ways. I'm not going to obey him they are rejecting the, the gift of 
life that Christ has offered, the, the, uh, the redemption that he's paid for. Um, they walk away from him. They turn their back on him. Um, and by doing that, uh, it's, it's basically saying, he's not going to force you to spend eternity with him if you choose not to. So that would be the case of losing their salvation. It's, it's not that somehow, that, oops, I did something, therefore I'm not saved. And it's not a case where, where he's telling you, you know, I don't want you anymore. Because, you know, he's, you know, Scripture says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So it's his desire for you to be with him. And you don't accidentally lose your salvation. You choose to walk away from God. The only way I can, can even consider that elect in the sense of some are, are elect to be saved and some are not is because of God's omniscience. God being omniscient, he knows all. So he knows those that will uh, choose to follow, and he knows those that will not. Um, so therefore, he, 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 we could look upon those who choose to follow him saying, those are the elect. But is it a case where from eternity, God looked at people and said, you will be saved and others you won't. Um, that doesn't, in, in, in my understanding, doesn't align with the God of, of love who wants all to be saved and be with him eternally. The third component of Methodism is methodical effort. Wesley was more than a preacher. He was an administrator, an administrative genius. Since leaders in the Church of England were not particularly supportive of his work, he established a separate organization. Alongside the church, or even within the church, he created systems to help those who responded to his preaching grow, and it all ran like a well-oiled machine. His followers would meet together in Methodist societies to sing and pray. John's brother Charles wrote thousands of hymns for those gatherings, hymns that we still sing today. They would divide up into classes, small groups of around a dozen people. They'd confess their sins to one another and hold each other accountable. So lay people outside the church hierarchy took leadership in these classes and societies. Some even became itinerant preachers. In the early days of the United States, as settlers headed west, this flexible system allowed Methodism to adapt and spread much easier than other denominations. Following Wesley's example, itinerant preachers would travel the country on horseback and hold tent meetings wherever they could. The preacher would move on afterward, but those who responded would organize themselves into classes. These groups then became the nucleus of a new church. Even today, you'll find small Methodist church buildings in almost every little town through the country. For decades, circuit-riding preachers would divide their time between several of these small churches. Kalamazoo Free Methodist Church traces its history back to one of these groups that began after a tent meeting in 1883. So Wesley's methodical approach has spread far beyond Methodism. We see it in the existence of parachurch organizations. It shapes evangelistic events. It also influences the way many Protestant churches approach small group ministry. From this perspective, Right behavior is more than just morality. To some degree, assurance is sought in spiritual activity and effort. Last week, I identified some pitfalls in Calvinism and its emphasis on right belief that can lead to a distorted understanding of the gospel. Arminianism and Methodism 
are attempts to correct those distortions. But if you're not careful, you can turn so hard toward right behavior and human effort that you slide off the road paved by the gospel, as Pelagius did. So let me share three cautions, like flashing yellow lights, to keep us on the path. My first caution is to keep trusting God's grace. At times, I've tried to explain faith as grabbing onto a rope that's thrown to you. But there's a problem with that analogy. It makes it seem as if my salvation depends, at least in part, upon my own ability to keep holding on. Arminianism seems to follow that line of thought with its focus on conditional election and conditional perseverance. There's no guarantee for the future, only for the moment. But the gospel directs us to trust in the saving power of God's grace. As I said last week, we do have a real responsibility to respond to the gospel in faith. But it's wrong to so emphasize our choice that we minimize or even deny God's sovereign choice in election. We must accept both rails even though we cannot see how they fit together. Passages like 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 5 teach us to be confident that he will carry us through. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter goes on to say that our faith will be tested by various trials. But he does not seem to allow for the possibility that genuine faith can ever fail. He's confident that God will carry us through to the end. There are certainly passages that speak of people who turn away. But 1 John 2.19 explains such cases by saying, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. We need to remember that salvation is a gift of God's grace, as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So keep trusting God's grace. My second caution is to keep seeking God's holiness. When you hear Wesley's ideas of perfection or entire sanctification, it would be easy to conclude that there are just two levels to the Christian life. There are the perfect ones, and then there's everyone else. Those who are supposedly perfect might assume that no further growth is needed. But those who continue to struggle with temptation might give up, reasoning that they'll never rise above subpar Christianity. Pastor Watson tried to counter such ideas in his explanation of Wesley's view, but I don't think he went far enough. Spiritual growth is an ongoing pursuit that begins at the moment of salvation and will not end until we see Jesus face to face. John's first epistle in the New Testament helps us think through this pursuit. Verses 8 through 10 of chapter 1 address those who might assume that they no longer sin. John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. 
The verb tense that John uses there in verse 9 suggests that the Christian life is one of ongoing confession. We may avoid obvious violations of God's commands, but do we consistently love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do we always love others as ourselves? If we're honest, we have to admit that we continue to fall short. But that does not mean that we should give up the pursuit. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. On the other hand, John asserts that a pattern of obedient behavior is part of our assurance of salvation. In verses 3-5, through he adds this, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Pastor Watson used this verse to speak of a believer reaching the level of having a perfect love for God. But I don't think that's what John is talking about. I think it makes more sense to say that this is the perfect love that God has for us. Every genuine believer receives that complete love, and our pattern of obedience confirms the reality of that relationship. Nevertheless, we must keep growing until we finally arrive in the presence of Jesus. Skipping down to 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So keep seeking God's holiness. My third caution is to keep depending upon God's Spirit. When we emphasize right behavior, we inevitably focus on human effort. We can begin to act as if it's entirely a matter of personal determination. But we must remind ourselves that the fruit that God wants us to bear is produced by the work of the Holy Spirit within us. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, Paul says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, we cannot develop that kind of character in our own effort alone. God must do that work in us through the Spirit. But that doesn't mean it's no longer our responsibility. Here again, we encounter those same two rails, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Paul even puts them side by side in verse 25 by saying, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. We hear the same two ideas in Philippians 2, 12-13, where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved... As you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. So keep depending upon God's Spirit. Of course, that raises more questions about how the Holy Spirit works in us. And we'll return to that subject next week, as I share excerpts from my interview with a Pentecostal pastor. So Methodism and Arminianism are correct to say that assurance of salvation is found in right behavior. They stop short of Pelagianism, 
but I think they still go too far. Without strong cautions, an individual under such teaching might lose touch with the gospel. We must trust that God's grace ensures our full and complete salvation. We must keep seeking God's holiness, and we must keep depending upon His Spirit. So right behavior must flow from right belief. Where's your trust today? Have you been trying to earn God's acceptance through your own goodness? That's the same error that Pelagius taught. The gospel invites you to trust in God's grace alone. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but God offers us the gift of eternal life in Christ. If you'd like to learn more about how right behavior flows from right belief, I would encourage you to spend some time reading Romans chapter 6. If you're a Christian, do you need to renew your pursuit of holiness? Are you purifying yourself in anticipation of seeing Christ? Are you walking by the Spirit and bearing fruit? We can all renew our focus on working out our salvation because God is the one who's at work in us. Do you know someone who perceives Christianity as just a moral checklist? If so, would you tell that person about God's grace? Encourage them to find their confidence in His saving power. May God fill us with the joy of salvation. For a transcript of this episode, visit my website, religiousmaze.org. You can use the contact page to let me know your thoughts. There you'll also find other helpful resources for understanding the Bible. You might want to check out my Bible teaching ebook titled Moving Forward. It's a verse-by-verse study of Ephesians 4 and 5, where Paul teaches us to walk in love, light, and wisdom. If you subscribe to my email update, you can download it for free. You'll find the link in the episode notes. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, share it on social media, and rate it on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to Finding Your Way in the Religious Maze.